So how's Christmas coming? You ready? Uh, got all your shopping done? Uh, notwithstanding, Leah just inviting you to do more. Um, so have you, if you've got your shopping, you've got your decorating, have you, have you uh, done your... I brought it today, good. Um, um, have you uh, have you have you gotten yourself ready? Have you you know you got your travel plans all sorted out? You got you got guests coming. You know when that's happening. You figured out you figured out the plan. This is what we do at Christmas time, and it's really amazing to me how much effort we put into something that that uh, you know. I know you could see Christmas in the stores, like back in, at the end of August, beginning of September, if you went to the right stores. But, but really, Christmas kind of goes by in a hurry. At least it does for me, because I don't get started until about this week. But, but um, I know some of you start a little earlier. But I mean, no matter when you start, Christmas goes by pretty quickly. And um, it's amazing how much effort we, we put into it. And the reason is, is obvious, because we want it to be a good Christmas. We want, we want Christmas to be good. And, and so we put in whatever effort we think is necessary, whatever effort we think will be helpful in making Christmas good. You know, everybody uh, wants at least a nice Christmas. You know, that, you know, maybe Uncle George won't do that thing this year or something. <laughs> we, we, we may have fairly modest goals for Christmas, but we want it to at least be nice. And we're hoping that Christmas will be wonderful and it'll be memories that we can, you know, treasure for the rest of our lives. Everybody hopes for these things at Christmas. And so we put in that extra effort. And uh, the reason is because we want to have a wonderful Christmas, even if, uh, you know, last year's is not one that we want to remember. But but um, w- w- we put in the effort because we want Christmas to be good. And I want to tell you today how you can do that. Uh, because it turns out that the passage we're looking at today, as Paul concludes his letter to the Romans, um, he... Uh, he, he tells us the secret to having hope, peace, and joy, the things that we long for at Christmas. He tells us where we can get them and how we can have them, not just at Christmas time, but uh, in the new year ahead, um, really for, for, for every day for the rest of our lives, we can have this promise is not just linked to Christmas. It's something that we, we think about more at Christmas, but it's something that's available uh, for the rest of our lives and even in the life to come. He says that this is, this is the secret to what, um, what God's promises are all about, and um, uh, unfortunately, it is an open secret. I, I say it's a it's a secret because because there's a lot of people who don't act like they've heard of it before. And I think you know you can blame preachers for a lot. And maybe maybe one of the things is we need to spend more time on this because because this is what the gospel is all about. So if this comes across to you as a secret, then then someone like me is to blame for it because you haven't heard it. But um, but if you've heard it before, um, maybe maybe part of the problem is we don't trust God enough to actually put it into practice. So what I want to do is look at what Paul says is the secret to hope, peace, and joy. So, um, so we'll begin with, uh, the idea that we, we, we left off with last week. I, I should, I should kind of back up just a hair and say the, the thing that makes Romans a particularly useful letter for us, um, is that Paul wrote a quarter of the New Testament. And, um, it's, it's in the form of these different letters. And most of them are to churches that he had founded. So he had, he had founded the church in Corinth. And so the, if you read the, the letters to the Corinthians, Paul is dealing with actual problems where they had written them a letter or somebody had come and visited and said, oh no, you know, Chloe's people are doing this thing or, or, you know, you don't know what the, the followers of Apollos are doing. And so Paul would write these letters and explain, you know, here's what, here's what you need to do. Here's how you can sort that out. Here's what God would have you do in these circumstances. And so when we read the, the rest of Paul's letters, they're kind of 
they speak to us, but we've got to kind of use our imagination and say, well, yeah, I don't know Chloe's people, but I kind of know somebody like Chloe's people. And so we've got to kind of translate them into our own language. But in the case of the Church of Rome, Paul was writing it as much to us as to anybody else. He was writing it to a church he'd never been to. And he had some friends of friends. You know, I know that, you know, uh, Aquila and Priscilla went back there again. And so he knows some people who are there, but he doesn't know what's going on at that church any more than he knows what's going on in our church. So he had to write a very general message. And so more than probably any other of his letters, the letter to the Romans speaks directly to us. And so it's very easy for us to, to access. And so, so he began last week as Paul kind of laid out the, the big picture idea of what God is doing. And, and if you weren't here last week, you can listen online, but briefly, Paul has this idea that, that creation was made good, but it went bad. And God said, that's okay. I've got this. I'm going to, I'm going to covenant uh, with Abraham and create a people that are set apart for my purposes, the people of Israel. And through them, I will restore creation to its good purposes. And the problem with that plan is that the, the, the people of Israel are people. And so they, they are subject to all the same failings that any other people is. And so the covenant seemed to be in jeopardy. And God said, no, I'm not done yet because I've got a solution for that. The solution is the Messiah. And so for over a thousand years, the people of God had looked forward to a Messiah who would solve the problems that Israel had introduced uh, that in turn were were preventing God from solving the problem that humanity had introduced. So so that's the big idea that Paul had talked about. And as we as we looked at last week, Paul said the good news is the Messiah has come. It's no longer a promise for the future. It's something that has already happened. So that's the good news. But Paul said, yeah, but there's a little asterisk next to that good news, and it's this. It's that it's that it's begun. You know, it has begun. It's no longer just a promise for someday in the future. But at the same time, it's not completed yet. And so Paul drew on the language of, of that we see Jesus talking about the kingdom of God being like a seed that's growing in the ground. He says it's not a tree yet. It's just a plant that is breaking into our world. But at the same time, it's not fully grown. Or Jesus used another metaphor. Jesus said, it's like yeast in a batch of dough. So, so these images are things for something that has begun, but it's, it's full effect has not yet been seen. And last week you saw, I indulged in, in the uh, earthquake sensitivity we have here in Alaska to say that the two ages, the, the present age and the age to come are like, uh, plate tectonics. You know, they're inevitable. You can't stop them. You know, there's no way you can stop Alaska from sliding into the Pacific or whatever it's doing. Um, but, but right now it's grinding and it's causing all this trouble, um, as, as the, uh, the, the mountains of grace and, uh, and the seismic shifts of mercy are, are, uh, introduced into our world. We live in that time. And so Paul says, that's, that's the problem. He says, he says, as he wraps up the first half of the letter in, in Romans 8, he says, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom to death and decay. The creation is groaning that there's, the, this, this thing is underway and it's actually, uh, in some ways it's more difficult than before because these two ages are groaning, uh, groaning against, are grinding against each other. He says, we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. He says, he says what God has already begun is not yet complete. So that's the problem we're in. Now he, he wraps up chapter eight, the first half of the letter by saying, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
won't he also give us everything else? We can have confidence that God has invested so much in this project that he will bring it to completion. And so when there's days when you're feeling a lot more earthquake and a lot less peace and quiet, then then you can have confidence that God is invested in this. God will will bring this to conclusion. There's nothing else God is going to withhold if he's already done this much. So So he wraps up the first half of his letter in chapter 8. Um, I knew a guy who used to say, if your, if your Bible doesn't fall open naturally to chapter 8 of Romans, then you're doing it wrong. And so, so, um, so he's, he's probably right about that. But what I want to do is t- talk about the, the second half of the letter. So he spends a couple of chapters talking to um, Israel. He talks to Jews. He talks to people who have a genetic relationship with Abraham. And he says, he says, there's a whole bunch of other people who are going to get grafted into this tree, and, and they're called Gentiles. And he says, and this is a good thing. And so, uh, because I'm one of them, and because I guess most of you are probably uh, not genetically related to Abraham, but you have been grafted into the tree of the children of Abraham, like like me. Um, I'm going to focus on the the part after that. So you can you can read that chapters nine, ten, and eleven, where he talks about that the the grafting in of the Gentiles, but. But then he goes on in chapter 13 and 14, he talks about how we live together during this time when the, the, the earthquakes are happening, when, when these two ages are growing, are, are grinding together, when the seed is growing, when the, the yeast is rising the dough. He says, how do we live in that age? And, um, he says, he says, um, in verse, uh, one of chapter 15, as he's wrapping up this whole long discussion, he says, he says, we who are strong, oh, oh. Sorry, I, I missed a point. So there we go. So the the problem is the present age is still present. That that it would be nice if the age to come were here, but it's not, and it is. But it's but it's being it's causing trouble because uh, the present age is still present. So Paul says um, that we need to live as if we are part of that present age. We can do that, but um, it may not be obvious. If you're used to thinking in terms of the 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 present age it's going to be hard to live in the in the age to come but we can so he says he says do he says don't copy the behavior and customs of this world but let god transform you into a new person by changing the way you think so that's chapter 12 now now where i meant to be so chapter 15 he says what do we do he says we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this uh we must not just please ourselves we should help others do what is right and build them up in the lord that's what he says um, that we should do. Now, I'm going to to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to say this is not a great translation. Uh, in general, this is probably my favorite translation. But in this case, I think that they, they told us what Paul means, but they didn't convey the strength of what Paul says. What Paul says, if you if you read the uh, Holman, Holman um, Bible, it says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Paul is is speaking much more strongly. It's the same idea, but there's more force behind it. And he says, not to please ourselves, each one of us must please his neighbor for his good. Not please yourself, but please your neighbor. So uh, our, our, our translation is not as strong as Paul's. And so this is the big idea for Paul. This is really what the whole book of Romans wraps up uh, into, which is the idea that hope, peace, and joy come from pleasing others. He says, "This is this is how you you get um, hope and peace and joy. This is the open secret. And if I was going to say um, 
what part of the gospel is the most offensive part, or what is the most countercultural part of the gospel? What is the part that people trip on? What makes the gospel a stumbling block? It is this. It is the idea that you will find your greatest contentment. You will find the hope and the peace and the joy that God intends for you, not when you look for it for yourself, but when you look for someone else. Have you seen these ads on TV where, uh, or, or, or in magazines or anywhere else where, uh, they, they know you're shopping and they encourage you to, to, to treat yourself while you're at it? You know, it's like, yeah, forget that person. You know, yeah, you know, Aunt Millie, whatever. How about if you also get one of these things here for yourself? You know, the buy one, get one, you know, the, the shop for you while you're shopping for them kind of thing. Paul, Paul would be horrified because he would say, no, 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 you're, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. The whole point is you will find your hope and peace and joy by shopping for Aunt Millie, by bearing her weakness, by pleasing her instead of yourself. And that's countercultural. You know, uh, I think maybe perhaps more than anywhere else in America, you know, we are the don't tread on me nation. We are the, the, you know, you are not the boss of me. Who elected you dictator kind of country, right? That's, that's kind of in our, in our, in our DNA. We don't like to think that, that I owe anybody anything. And Paul says, well, you may not owe them, but that's the way you will find happiness. And, and I know that it must have been a, a problem back in ancient Rome as well, because Paul doesn't leave it there. He says, even Christ didn't please himself, that he didn't live to please himself. This is, this is not just something, this is Paul telling you, here's my advice for a good life. He says, look at Christ and learn from him. Because he, he could have done it any way he wanted, and this is the way he did it. So he says, look at him. He says that this is, this is what Christ did. As the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen to me. Uh, people couldn't, couldn't deal with what you, you offered them, God. And so they spurned it. They turned away. They, they turned their back on it. And Christ, the, the scripture says that Christ took that on himself. He took our weakness on himself. So, so he says, Christ did this. And, and the key thing for Paul is that have you ever had one of those conversations? Somebody says, you know, the garbage is, is too full. <clears throat> but no, 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 no particular request for you in there. And so, so you, you kind of, you know, work, you work this in your head and you figure out what's really being said. And so you, you put down your book or you turn away from your computer and you go, <sighs> you know, how loud can the sigh be, right? It's like, All right, I'll take care of it. Paul says, that's not what Jesus did. Paul says, Jesus was not sitting around, you know, watching, you know, binge watching Netflix up in heaven. And God says, there's a problem down on earth. And Jesus went, "Ah, I'll take care of it. He says, this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus has always been. This is who God is eternally. So in the scriptures, we read, that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. When he is pleasing us instead of himself, when he is living for us, when he is bearing our burdens, he is revealing who he really is. That's not a temporary thing he did on the side. It's who he really is. And because he reveals who Christ is, I mean, who God is, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He says, this is who God is. This is the way the universe works, that you will find your hope 
your peace, your joy, when you live for others, when you put their needs first. And if you think about the high points of your own life, you know that this is true. It's when you actually find the right present for Aunt Millie and and you see her face when she opens it up, that's when you go, ah. That's when you say, I have found some hope and some peace and some joy. So hope, peace, and joy come from pleasing others. Um, And eternal means that something is not temporary. That Jesus didn't do this as a temporary thing. This is who Jesus really is. This is the eternal character of God revealed to us. And Paul says, that's what scripture tells us. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be revealed. Because the scriptures tell us that this is what God is really up to. We can have hope. We can have encouragement as we wait for that, that dawn of the, the, the new age that is coming. Right? We can live in it already and not be disturbed as the present age continues to grind against us. So, the question is basically, do we believe this? Do, do we believe that that's what um, God has in store for us? He goes on in, chapter, uh, in verse 5, he says, May God, who gives you patience and encouragement, help you to live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. He says that as you align yourself with what God is doing, as you align yourself with the way God made the world work, you will find that you will, you have this peace. But more than that, God will actually put his thumb on the scale. God will lean into this and help you. God helps you succeed at living in harmony. And then in verse um, 6, he says, uh, Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, this is what God is doing. He wants you all to live in harmony. He wants you to please each other. He wants you to bear one another's burdens. He wants you, he wants the strong among you to take care of the weak. So he says, this is the goal. And then he states it again slightly differently, puts a different angle on it. He says, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. He says, he says, um, he says that we should accept one another the way that Christ accepted you. And the accepting one another part's the easy part, but it's the it's the just as Christ accepted me, because I can kind of grudgingly say, All right, sure, you know, knock yourself out. I don't mind if you're here. But it's a whole different thing to say to accept you the way that Christ accepted me. So how did Christ accept us? Well, we, we know the stories. When Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus, this hated tax collector, a chief tax collector, the, the, the head swindler in the whole region, Zacchaeus is up in the tree, and he looks up and calls him and says, Quick, Zacchaeus, I must be a guest in your home today. Jesus said, I'm going to associate with the worst person I can find. This is like saying, I'm going to to figure out who in Anchorage runs the most drug cartels, and I'm going to stay at their house. Jesus hangs out with people like that. Uh, a much lower grade tax collector was a guy named Matthew, and Jesus came up to him one day and said, hey, I want you to join my group. And so Matthew says, I'm, I'm in. You're the first person who haven't spit at my feet in, in a month. So uh, Matthew invites Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many other tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. And it doesn't do Jesus' reputation any good to hang out with people like that. When the Pharisees see him in the party with these disreputable people, 
They ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Jesus is actually at a party with a Pharisee one day, and a woman comes in and begins to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. And the Pharisee is horrified that Jesus would let a woman like that touch his his feet. And he goes, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. This is who Jesus hangs out with. Jesus associates with people that it does his reputation no good to be seen with. Jesus associated, in other words, with the people he loved. And the challenge for us is to love the people that we associate with. It's easy to associate with them. But there'll be distance unless we say, I'm associating with these people because I know Jesus loves them and I want to get close to anybody that Jesus loves. So Paul says, associate with people in the same way that Christ associated with you. And then there's a big section here. He says, remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He says, "He says if you've been waiting for the Messiah to come and, and fix things, Jesus is doing that. God is faithful. God keeps his commitments. But he says he also came so that the Gentiles, the people who are not historically part of the people of God, might give glory to God for his mercies to them too. And to to justify this or to explain where this is coming from, he quotes four different scriptures. He quotes from from um, the Psalms. He says, this is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, for this I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing praises to your name. And in another place, in the book of Deuteronomy, it is written, rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, in another psalm, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, praise him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah says, the heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. Why does Paul do all this proof texting? Why does he suddenly give us four verses of scripture that explain what God is doing? It's because he's quoting the entire Old Testament. In in the Hebrew mind, there were three chunks of the Old Testament. There was the Torah, the law, the first five books. He quotes from Deuteronomy. There were the prophets, Isaiah and all the other prophets. He quotes from Isaiah. And there were the writings, the, the Psalms and other writings. Paul quotes the Psalms twice. He says, he says, all of the scriptures have been pointing to what God is doing. The Torah, the law. The writings, the prophets, this is what God has always been up to, to incorporate the Gentiles, not just to show mercy to the Jews, not just to show mercy to the religious people, not just to keep faith with them, but to show mercy to the Gentiles. So who are the Gentiles? Well, ancestrally, we're we're probably all of us Gentiles. But more than that, I think anybody who wasn't once a believer is a Gentile. Anybody who's got immature beliefs about God, anybody who's got incomplete beliefs about God, and frankly, anybody who's just in error about God, these are these are who Paul's talking about. The Gentiles are the people that don't know who God is. And Paul says, accept them. Bear their burdens. Be strong because they can't. They don't have the resources yet to be strong. He says that's where God is taking all of creation. The Hebrew scriptures show us that harmony is where creation is headed. And so he wraps this up. Um, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. And then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Where does hope, peace, and joy come from? Paul says, it's when we who are strong must bear the weaknesses of those who are not strong. We please not just ourselves, but we should please others and build them up in our Lord. So, 
What do we do? Well, we please others. And this is not hard. This is the easy part of Christmas, pleasing others, right? You, you give them the perfect gift. You, you, you put out the right cookies. You make the right meal. Whatever it is, you put the right decorations up, and you please people. That's the easy part of Christmas. <coughs> but accepting people at Christmas, that's a lot harder. Um, when I was when I was a kid, we would always, or when I was a teen, I should say, we would always get into political arguments at Christmas, um, and uh, and so eventually we got to the place where we just wouldn't talk about politics. But I'm going to propose something else. If you have difficulty accepting people at Christmas, um, then then uh, you can translate this into whatever it looks like in your in your world. But I think I think in terms of social media, um, you know, you know, forget the argument. There's just a person who posts a thing. And you go, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Hmm. And you, you should say this. Say, they're a Gentile, and I am one who is strong. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to ream them out. I'm not going to show them that they, their thinking is all wrong. And I'm not going to block them. Instead, I'm going to like that. And it's going to hurt me to like that because it's so stupid. Because I could not vote for that man. <laughs> there is no way I could, you know, I have signed a petition to get rid of that guy. Right? But I'm going to like that post, not because I believe in that politics, but because I love that person. So I'm going to like their post. And you know what? When the role is called up yonder, God is not going to look at your social history, social media history, and say, you know what? You actually weren't telling the truth about that political issue there. (laughs) He's going to say, you loved somebody that I died for. So let me encourage you, during the Christmas season, like a lot of dumb posts on social media. <laughs> and then translate that into whatever it looks like, whoever's coming to visit and you're already regretting having invited them. Translate it into that world too. And lastly, I want to talk about what we're doing together. We're, gonna, we're, we're trying our best to, to welcome a lot of Gentiles to our worship service this Christmas Eve. We, we learned that the, the time that most people are, are willing to come to a Christmas Eve service is 4 p.m. And we thought about it hard because we weren't able to fill up our 7 p.m. service last year. We said, do we really need a second service? And the answer is we don't. But we're hoping. We're hoping that we will meet the need of some people who are our Gentiles. If we are the people of God, we need to make it easy for some Gentiles to reach God. And so we're having a second service. We're going to have a 4 p.m. service um, a week from Tuesday because we really want to make it easy for Gentiles. We we want to do everything we can to help people connect with God. And so we're, I mentioned earlier we're going to have a practice. We're going to really try and make it fit other people's schedules. We who are strong are going to bear with the weaknesses of those who are not strong because this is what we're called to do. And we believe that it is not by saying if we recreate the perfect Christmas we had four years ago or 17 years ago or 40 years ago, if we can somehow recreate that, we will find hope, peace, and joy. But it is actually by bearing the burdens of the weak that we will find hope, peace, and joy. So I invite you to think about our Christmas services in that in that light. There will be people here who do not like coming to church, maybe who've never been to church. So pray for them. Pray that somehow they connect to God during this service. And pray for the people who invited them. Because they know that this is the one chance they've got all year. The person they've been praying for all year, this is the one chance they might actually come to our church service. So I, so I ask you to, to be in prayer for these services, that they are effective in reaching the people we need to reach. Because it is in doing this, we align ourselves with who God is, 
we align ourselves with who God made us to be, and we will find hope, peace, and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this present age has so affected us that, that we, we think that you came to rescue us and then went back to what you were doing. We forget that you are a God who delights in rescuing. You are a God who delights in putting your needs aside and helping those who have need. Lord, because we are so, because so much of the present age still clings to us, Lord, we pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be the kind of people that Paul describes, people who use whatever strength they have to help those who have less, people who accept others in the same way that Christ accepted them. Lord, help us to to do this in our individual gatherings at Christmas time and, and, and other times, and help us to do it as a congregation um, next week at Christmas. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen.